advertised, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians. A couple of introductory remarks before we start. There were apparently three letters to the Corinthians. We only have two. There's a missing one that is referred to obliquely, and it, it appears to have been starchy. And considering how starchy 1 Corinthians starts off, I, Paul felt it necessary to apologize for being so starchy in the other one. Corinth is laughingly called the letter to the Californians. Corinth is a seaport town, very much like San Francisco. In San Francisco, and in fact in most seaport towns, you can get pretty much anything you want. In Corinth, there's no exception. Paul, in the letter to Corinthians, is writing to correct some problems. He has been there before. He has planted the church there in Corinth. So these are people that he has been with in the past, and now he's writing a pastoral letter to jerk them up straight because they have gone off the rails, or at least some of them have gone off the rails. So this is very much a, an admonition kind of a letter. But as we get into it, the first four chapters, and I doubt that we'll get through all four chapters tonight, that would be a record if we did, deal with the subject of schism. What's happening in the church in Corinth is that they've formed into cliques. Some people in one clique says, oh, Paul's got the word. We're going to follow Paul. We're going to do what Paul said. And some other ones say, oh, no, 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 don't, don't mess with that Paul guy. We're going to go with Apollos. And then some say, well, no, 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 we're going to follow Yeshua. So the way I would describe it is you have a bunch of new believers, and they don't have a solid foundation in Torah and Tanakh. Paul has gone through there, preached the gospel, got everybody in the church excited and saved, but they don't have a base of knowledge. Apollos, by the way, as you all know, is a heavy hitter in Torah. From everything I've read about Apollos, very sound, very good guy. He was originally baptized with the baptism of repentance, and Paul explained to him the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In no case does Paul cast any aspersions on Apollos. So what you have is cliques forming around teachers because each teacher as he speaks will have a different perspective on something. Like my perspective on the book of Corinthians would be very different from a Baptist preacher's perspective on Corinthians. So, for example, Adrian Rogers I very thoroughly enjoy. I love listening to him preach. He doesn't see the scriptures the way I do, but I can listen to him and I can get what he's trying to tell me and I can understand the life lessons that he's trying to, and, and I can, yeah, okay. I can live in your community because we don't see everything exactly the same, but we're on the same team. If I were to come and preach on, for example, Galatians, and Adrian Rogers were to preach on Galatians, you would get two different messages. And the only way to disambiguate them is to go back into the Tanakh and find out what perspective we're coming from. And if you don't have the depth of knowledge or the base of knowledge to be able to do that, what you wind up with is arguments. I like the way Paul said it. I like the way Apollos said it. I don't like either one of them. I'm going to follow Christ, that kind of thing. 
my impression is that these are arguments not from knowledge, but arguments from personality. The other thing I will say about Corinthians and Paul in general, when I was first coming into the messianic stuff, I was at that time on a prophecy web board. And the people on the board that were commenting were very bright, very biblically literate. They knew the scriptures very well. They were coming from a position of Pauline theology as they understood it, which is grace alone. And so when I would argue with them about points of theology, we would wind up, never got to the point where we were angry with each other because I didn't get angry, but we just wouldn't agree because their view of Scripture was so radically different from my view of Scripture. And one of the things that I found that they did is they will take chunks of Paul and they will quote them as snippets of truth. I've got a guy that I occasionally read who's a Brit, and he came to belief late in life and regards himself as sort of a scholar on uh, C.S. Lewis and that kind of, he's a, he's a British professor of something. But he's saying, I've come to the conclusion that the book of John is the most beautiful thing ever written in the language, especially in the divinely inspired King James Version. I don't understand it, but I've been working on it now for months. And I'll read part of it, and I'll go pray, and I'll go walk, and I'll come back, and I'll read part of it, and, and so forth. And I sort of want to say, your problem here is you don't understand Moses. John is beautiful, and it's very clear. But if you don't understand Moses, you will get a completely different understanding of what John is talking about. So, as I was arguing with these folks on the message board that I was on, they would grab a chunk of Paul, and they would flop it out there and say, this contradicts what you're saying. Well, maybe. I'm not sure it does in context, but that isn't the way to approach Scripture. One of the things that I've said in the past is Scripture is limited by language. In other words, we all speak in some language. That's what we think of. And there are limitations to language. It is not possible to have a language that is logically complete. So Paul is writing things which in the context and on the circumstances are true and useful to the people he's writing to, but they are not intended to be blazing signs of scriptural infallibility that you can pick one of them and live your life by that one and you're there. But Corinthians and Romans are the two places that they often fetched up because there's lots of really good sound bites in Corinthians and Romans. So as I read this today, I, I was taken back to my days of arguing with these biblically literate believers in God, saved by the grace of God, good people. I don't have any animus toward them at all. I just don't agree with their interpretation of Scripture. When God returns, he'll explain which one of us is right, or more likely, that both of us are wrong. And that'll be fine. With that introduction, 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Messiah Yeshua and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Messiah Yeshua, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. So, standard introduction. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you by Messiah Yeshua, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Messiah is confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the duty of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, God is faithful to whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Yeshua Messiah, our Lord. I have argued with people who will take that introduction and say, we have all the spiritual gifts. Now, I have a phrase that I haven't used in a while, but it's probably a good time to use it now. If you were fat, bald, and stupid before you got the Holy Spirit, you will continue to be fat, bald, and stupid after you get the Holy Spirit. What you have is a connection to God at that point. And that connection of God, if you try and maintain it, will lead you into wisdom. But it's not like somebody stuck a USB drive in your ear and did a download. But I used to have folks that would go to places like this and say, I know everything through Christ. Well, the problem with that is in the next paragraph, he is going to light them up. He is going to correct them. He is going to say that you guys are not doing good. He is going to say that you are wise in your own conceit. In other words, this is a boilerplate. You guys are great. I love you. All that kind of stuff. Now we're going to get down to the purpose of the letter, which is getting your headspace straight. So it is not the case that this particular set of phrases is intended to indicate that someone who has been saved by Messiah suddenly becomes a spiritual Einstein. It doesn't work that way. So now, verse 10, and from 1 through the end of chapter 4, is all going to be on this same subject. So he's going to wander several places, but the context here is the subject that we're about to bring up. I appeal to your brothers by the name of our Lord Yeshua Messiah that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Messiah did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this words of eloquent wisdom, that's going to be what he's going to start talking about next. And the problem that we've got, as I just described, is you've got at least four factions in this church. Here what we've got are all Gentiles, as far as I know. I mean, there may be some random Jews in there, but mostly it's a Gentile church. And what's happened is they have fallen into four factions and the thing that's moved Paul to write is that those four factions are quarreling with each other. Let's go back to my Adrian Rogers example. If you were to get a sermon from Adrian Rogers and I were to give a sermon on the same subject, 
we would be able to sit in here in Midrash and work on it. And you could say, well, Rogers said this, and why do you think that that's not right? And you said that, well, why does Rogers think you're not? You'd wrestle it out. And at the end of the day, it might be the case that you guys like the way Adrian Rogers said it, and you like the way I said it, but we can all do lunch. Apparently, the division here is more serious than that. And what Paul is talking about here, and this is leading into his next point, is in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That words of eloquent wisdom, now he's going to go off on a riff on human wisdom here. And he is explicitly saying that when I came to you, I was not the most eloquent preacher you ever heard. Now, other than the fact that, God bless him, Paul can't write a short sentence, other than that, he can be very eloquent. What he's saying, though, is that isn't what I used to convince you. Because if the only thing I used to convince you was my fast talking, then some other fast talker is going to be able to come in and pull you off of it. And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. I came to you with demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit. And you should believe that. But don't be convinced simply because I was a very glib-talking guy with a three-day pass and a briefcase. But be convinced because of the power of God that was operating through me. That's going to be the essence of his argument. So we're now down to verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it proves the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And that is from Isaiah chapter 29. And I'm not going to take you back to Isaiah 29, but I will give you a short synopsis of Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29 is the exile chapter. In Isaiah 29, what God says through the prophet is, you guys are going into exile. And what's going to happen here is, I am going to cover your eyes and your ears, which is the seers and the sages, and I'm going to close the book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away from you not only the Word of God, but those who can interpret the Word of God. Because you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's mission from God is speak to these people in a way that they will not understand because they're going into exile. And if you spoke to them clearly, it might be the case that they would listen and change their ways and then I'd have to forgive them. But I've already decided I'm not going to forgive them right now. I'm going to send them into exile. And by the way, that's the way Yeshua preaches also. Before Matthew chapter 13, Yeshua preaches in plain language. After chapter 13, Yeshua preaches in parables. And what has happened at chapter 13 is you have the attribution of the power that Yeshua exhibits being ascribed to Beelzebub as opposed to being ascribed to the Holy Spirit. And at that point, God says, all right, they're going into exile. So Yeshua goes into code speak. And the rest of the book of Matthew is written in parables. And in fact, the parables are so deep that when we start with the first one, which is the parable of the sower, his disciples go, what are you talking about? We don't understand a word you just said, boss. 
And he then goes and explains to them that parable because they don't understand it. So what Paul is saying here when he's quoting from Isaiah is he's saying that at some point when God finally gives up on a, a nation, and I need to say that very carefully, he hasn't given up on Israel. He's given up on Israel's ability to govern themselves. That's what happens in Isaiah and Jeremiah. In other words, Israel has fallen into violence, oppression, injustice, all those things, and God finally says, I can't let you guys govern yourselves anymore. Let's put you under the Babylonians for a while, or let's put you under the Assyrians for a while, or let's put you under the Romans for a while, and they will teach you a little bit of self-government here. So when Paul is quoting this scripture, let me read it to you again, and I'll get the context for you. So back to verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Well, when is Paul writing this letter? After the crucifixion and the resurrection, but before 70 AD, before the exile. And what Yeshua has decreed during the final part of his ministry before his crucifixion is you guys are going into exile. So what Paul is saying is uh, we're in sort of the same place here that they were when the Assyrians were going to take out the northern kingdom and when the Babylonians were going to take out the southern kingdom. You will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In other words, you will not be able to find people who will understand the scriptures and interpret them because Israel is going into exile. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So one of the things that is a problem with humanity is we really fall in love with our big brains. We like our big brains. And there is always the tendency to organize a society based on human reason. That is the absolute worst thing that you can use to organize a society. Never works. All of the famous isms that just killed over 100 million people in the 20th century were the product of human wisdom. The French Revolution, which descended into chaos and terror and genocide, was the product of human wisdom. French regarded themselves as being enlightened. We're wise. We're going to be able to organize a society that's going to be perfect. Oh, you don't fit. All right, guillotine time. So what Paul is saying here is the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of the world. And in order to get the wisdom of God, you have to depend on revelation, not reason. Now, reason is a perfectly good tool. As I say, I use it myself sometimes. It's a good tool if you are reasoning from a foundation of revelation. Once you get the revelation of who God is and what he wants through his scripture, then it's perfectly sound to reason about that and you know extrapolate and say, all right, well, it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. How do we make that work? Or what do we do with that? And of course, the Jews have come up with what we're talking about is you figure out compensatory damages. But you don't go around blinding people. Because if nothing else, there is no way to recompense a one-eyed man who is blinded. So 
a lot of these things are not to be taken literally, but they're to be taken seriously, which is to say, you're supposed to reason about them from a perspective of believing in God and then come up with how are you going to behave in this world. Reason is a tool that God gave you. It's perfectly valid. It's just not a good basis for organizing society. So 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preached Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what he's saying is if you try and explain the crucifixion and the fact that the sacrifice of Messiah gets forgiveness of sins, and allows you to inherit eternal life, if you try and explain that to a Greek, he will look at you as enemy, he sense. If you try and explain it to a Jew, what he will say is, wait a minute, this guy Yeshua didn't fulfill the scriptures. There are things written in the Torah and Tanakh that indicate what the Messiah is supposed to do. Yeshua didn't fulfill a lot of those. And the fact that he died in the process to them is, well, he didn't fulfill all the signs. He's not the right guy. Sorry, we hoped he was, but he's not. One of the things the Messiah will do is bring back Ephraim and reunite Israel and bring the whole nation together in the land and throw off foreign oppression, for example. He did some of the things that Messiah is expected to do, but he didn't do them all. And so they said... Okay, he was a miracle worker. We got miracle workers. He was able to cast out demons. We can cast out demons. But he doesn't do the most important thing about the Messiah in that we're not reunited and we're still up to our butts and hairy Romans. So he's not the guy. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, one of the things that God is able to do is to bring into existence things that did not exist before. Similarly, he is able to bring to naught, destroy, things that are, using things that are not, which is to say spiritual methods. Remember, this is a screed against human hubris. Understand that God is not against human wisdom. We have the book of Proverbs, for example, and the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Deuteronomy. So you have lots of books in Scripture that extol human wisdom. Human wisdom is a good thing. It's something that God gave you. The problem is when you use human wisdom to replace God. And what God does under those circumstances is he takes the things that the wise despise, he takes the things that the strong despise, and he uses the foolish and the weak to confound them. And in that process, he can bring things into existence from things that do not exist, which is to say he can make things appear that did not exist before. I mean, he did a whole universe that way. 
just in, you know, in a lazy week. And the other thing he can do is he can bring to naught things that are. It is not just creation that he can do, he can also do destruction. If he wants to get rid of an empire, he's perfectly capable of doing that. Nebuchadnezzar crawling around on his hands and knees eating grass for a period of time. Very wise man, very competent king from everything I can tell. But God said, eh, we need a little lesson in humility here. And so he knocked him to his knees and he wandered around eating grass like a donkey for a while. But the point here that Paul is making is, you guys are puffed up in your supposed wisdom. And you need to understand, bucko, that as far as God's concerned, your wisdom is not terribly impressive. And Paul is too nice to say this, but I think he could probably also say, as far as I'm concerned, your wisdom is not terribly impressive. He doesn't actually say that, but you sort of get the impression that that's going through his mind somewhere. Verse 28 is the beginning of the sentence. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So he chose things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Created things he has destroyed using things that are not created. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Messiah Yeshua, whom God made your wisdom and your righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And again, when I was arguing with these folks 20 years ago now, they would come to places like this and say, I've got the mind of Christ. And that's not what's being said here. What's being said is that the revelation of God is the ultimate source of wisdom. And if you are neglecting that and trusting in your own wisdom, you're a fool. But as I said earlier, if you were fat, bald, and stupid when you got saved, you will be fat, bald, and stupid immediately thereafter. And it's only a process of sanctification and study and walking in the Lord that brings you this wisdom that Paul talks about. And that takes time. This is not a screed against human wisdom. It's a screed against human hubris. Understand the difference. And the thing that they are so proud of is their wisdom. So he's attacking their wisdom not because wisdom's a bad thing, but being proud of your wisdom and puffed up in your wisdom is a bad thing. Chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, we just talked about that. For I decided to know nothing among you except Yeshua Messiah and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I said that earlier, if some slick-talking guy can come through and convince you of one thing, another slick-talking guy can come through and convince you of something else. And so what Paul is saying is, when I first taught you the gospel, I did not take you into theology. I did not talk about the Talmud. I did not do any of that stuff. What I did is I demonstrated to you the power of the Holy Spirit that you might understand the power of God. Now, once you understand the power of God, then learning all this other stuff is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it, provided that your foundation is solid. 
Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a hidden secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. All right, pause there for a minute. I've, I've been through this rift before, so let's go to Ephesians. Same preacher, still Paul. So Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Messiah Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's saying, I have got the Gentile franchise. Remember, they, they divided up the franchise. Peter has the Jews. Paul has the Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in their generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. Continuing on, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So this mystery is a mystery that is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And if you're back in 1 Corinthians 2, we're talking about the rulers of this age. And I am suggesting to you that those are the same beings. So you've got the rulers of this age in 1 Corinthians 2, and in Ephesians 3, you've got the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And both cases, we're talking about a mystery. And the mystery is that the crucifixion of Yeshua was going to allow the Gentiles to become fellow heirs with the Jews. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians is if the rulers of this age had realized that that was going to be the consequence of the sacrifice of Messiah, they would never have let it happen. We get glimpses of what's going on in heaven in Scripture. Not a lot, but we get glimpses. And one of the things that we realize is that God is dealing with a rebellion in heaven. And we are simply one of the battlefields in that rebellion. I don't know if there may be more. I mean, this is the one we know about, so maybe the only one, or there may be lots of them. But the point is, he's dealing with a rebellion. And everybody who's rebelling against God is a creation of God. Now, are people able to rebel against God? Sure. So too with heavenly beings. They are apparently able to rebel against God. So God is dealing with a rebellion, and in a military operation, one of the things that you don't do is you don't tell the enemy all your plans. However, since God is the creator of all, and God pre-existed everything, God was able to set up the situation for his victory before the rebellion happened. In other words, what he did is he set up repentance and he set up the sacrifice of his son 
that was going to be sufficient for the forgiveness of all human sin. And at that point, once that forgiveness is set up, then it is possible. We spent, I don't know how many weeks in Hebrews talking about this very thing. The idea that Christ, Messiah, is a man. And because he is a man, he is our brother. And because he is our brother, since he is the heir of everything that God has, we as his brethren also have an inheritance. The Jews have a special job. They're the ones to take care of the temple and to maintain the scriptures and so forth. That's their job. They got a special job. And what this is saying is, once the Jews were chosen, the principalities and powers couldn't do anything about the fact that the Jews were going to be saved. But what they didn't want to have happen was everybody else to come in too. And the book of Hebrews that we've just studied explains how that works. And what Paul is saying here in Corinthians and Ephesians is this is a mystery that God hid from before the creation of the world and he set it up so that in the end he wins. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians and Corinthians is that they were blindsided. All right, that's a good place to pause.